0: I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find the book of Daniel on page 742. That will take you to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to give a little preview, uh, uh, set the stage for you, give you some context to help you a bit with the story that we will look at. He was the king of Babylon. Instead of worshiping the creator, he worshiped the creature. Instead of gazing at the glory of God, his gaze was focused in the mirror as he focused intently upon himself, prided himself for who he was and what he had accomplished. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4 verses 31 to 33 describe the absolutely pitiful turn of events in the life of this man who failed to honor the true God and king of the universe. The words read, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. King Nebuchadnezzar, self-made man, moved from the king of Babylon to a man who for all practical purposes, lost his mind as God sent him out to pasture for the sin of pride and arrogance. As we picture a man whose fingernails grew long and filthy, whose hair grew long and his beard grew very long. He's a portrait of a man in love with himself who failed to honor the living God. Well, the title of the message this morning is God is sovereign. I want to encourage you this morning to strap on your seatbelts for the theme of God's sovereignty runs from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Indeed, the fact of the sovereign control of God over all things is well established in Scripture, as we shall see. Proverbs 19, for instance, says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. Isaiah 14, verse 27 says, for the Lord of hosts has purpose and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back or consider the words of Psalm 135, verse six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth. In the seas and all the deeps. You see, this morning, to affirm the fact of God's kingly authority over all things is absolutely essential as we paint a portrait of the God who reigns over all things. Now, we'll see that the scriptures not only affirm that God is sovereign, but we also recognize, and I think it's important to note, especially in the generation that we live in. That the creeds also bear important witness to the sovereignty of God over all things. I don't know if you've heard the phrase. If you ever want to watch me get in a bad mood, just say these words. Deeds, not creeds. Deeds, not creeds. It's a well-intentioned formula, that I want to see your activity to glorify God, I don't want to hear what you believe. And while it's well in intention, it's a statement that does not ring true in the word of God. It is not only important what we do, namely the deeds, it is also vitally important what we believe, namely our creed. And so let me share with you a few of the creeds and how they unpack the sovereign control of God over all things. In 1689, in 1689, some Baptist theologians convened and they wrote an absolutely important document called the Baptist Confession of Faith. It was only in 1647, several years prior to the authorship of the Baptist Confession, that our Presbyterian friends got together at the Westminster Assembly and crafted a very important confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, our Baptist brothers got together. We can go back, Nathan, to the Baptist Confession for a moment. But our Baptist brothers got together and basically used the Westminster Standards as a model for their Doctrinal formulations. Notice what it says. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. What? All things whatsoever comes to pass. Now look at the Westminster larger catechism. It says, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. One of the creeds that may be less known to you but equal in importance is entitled the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession states, We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, that is, luck, but that according to his holy will, he so rules and governs them, that in this world, nothing happens without his direction. So we see that the scripture affirms The sovereignty of God, the creeds and the catechisms affirm clearly the sovereignty of God, the heroes of the Christian faith, namely the heroes throughout church history have always affirmed the sovereignty of God. One of those heroes, it will not surprise you, is a man who was born in 1703, died in 1758. His name was Jonathan Edwards. It probably will surprise you when I tell you what his attitude was initially toward the sovereign God of the universe. Here's what he said. Let's look at that if we could. Nate, are you up there? There we go. One more, bud. There we go. Jonathan Edwards said this. From my childhood up. And I want you to ask if you can sympathize with the words of Edwards. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Jonathan Edwards struggled Mightily with the question of God's sovereign control over all things, I think we'll find in our congregation. There are some here who wrestle greatly with the sovereign control of God over all things. I can guarantee you that there is a battle out in the marketplace of ideas, whether it is in culture at large or other churches, sister churches in this area. We find that people struggle with this doctrine. Jonathan Edwards, in the final analysis, was was forced with this subject to either love the doctrine or leave the doctrine. He was forced to choose. He had to reconcile these things in his mind. And I want you to see the shift that takes place in the heart of this Puritan divine. He said this. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. And what Edward says next, I return to over and over and over and over again. And I hope you will do it with me. He says this. This is the one that, that despised the sovereignty of God. He goes on to say this. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. You see the shift? He went from struggle to a sheer delight in the sovereign pleasure of God. And I'm here to confess to you this morning that something very similar happened in my heart many years ago. For there is a time, even as a a Bible college student, who wrestled with the sovereignty of God. You see, we have this, this thing in tension. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. Which is it? And the answer is Yes! God is sovereign. People are responsible. God is sovereign. People are free. Now when I say people are free, that is a loaded statement. And I have to tell you that I have some comments prepared this morning that I've decided to omit about the free will of man. But suffice it to say, God is sovereign People make free decisions. We must hold those two in tension. And so the alteration in my mind was similar to what happened in Edward's mind. And here is what I began to confess early in 1991 or 1992. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Sometimes so much that I've heard comments. I heard one man I respected and he said, it seems like Steele's really hung up on the sovereignty of God. And I took that as a compliment. Why? Because absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon on the sovereignty of God. He said, There is no doctrine more comforting to God's children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought to more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of the, his own hands, the throne of God, his right to sit on that throne. On the other hand, Spurgeon says, there is no doctrine more hated by world links That is carnal people. That is unconverted people as the great stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. This morning, I want to ask, where do you stand in relationship to the sovereignty of God? Are you like Edwards in his early teen years when he said, I despise that doctrine or have you crossed the divide? And can you confess with him, Pastor, I I don't understand it all. I don't know how all the details work out, but I can say this, that absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Will you pray with me as we open God's word? Our Father, I thank you uh, for the topic before us. We thank you that it is more than a mere topic. This is a subject of vital importance. This is an attribute that is essential to your nature. And God, I freely confess that it is apparent that there is a struggle with this particular attribute in the lives of many people and so i pray for anyone struggling today that the struggling would would end today that today would be the day when each of us can say absolute sovereignty is what i love to ascribe to the living god god would you comfort your people would you encourage your people and i pray that uh, our study this morning would lead us to to trust you with gigantic hearts of faith, that we would uh, lean into the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be gospel centered in everything we say and do. First, in Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. I want to have you stand with me as we look at the passage, as we read it together, and look at specific in specific verses thirty-four and thirty-five, Daniel chapter four, verses thirty-four and thirty-five. At the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar. Lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high God and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? May God bless the reading of the word. You may be seated. I want to begin with this fundamental assertion. And that is the assertion that God is sovereign. And in keeping with the pattern over the last several months, I want to uh, give you a brief definition of sovereignty and then move on to describe it and then apply it to our lives. Really, the definition I want to share with you comes from the pen of James Boyce. And he says this, that God has absolute authority and rule over his creation. In order to be sovereign, Boyce says, God must also be all knowing, all powerful and absolutely free. If he were limited in any of these areas, he would not be entirely sovereign. I want you to consider this with me. If you, along with other people in the evangelical world, try to limit the sovereignty of God, what you have essentially done is you have dethroned God. If there are any limitations to God's sovereign control over all things, he has been rendered powerless. Or you can do what others have fancied, And that is to say, he's sovereign over all things, but he limits himself by giving people the ability to do whatever they want. I don't see that in scripture. I see a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things. And so you ask this, if it's true that God fails to be sovereign... It leads to this fundamental reality. God is not God. And if God is not God, he is unworthy to be worshipped. And we are numbered among those who are pitiful. And so we affirm with the scriptures. We affirm with the creeds and the catechisms. We affirm with our heroes of church history that God is sovereign. Boyce goes on. He says, God has the right and power and wisdom to do whatever makes him happy. Now, let me stop there and have you consider this because next week we, I cannot wait to preach next week. Actually, I can't wait to preach today, but today is today and next week is next week. Next week, we are going to discuss and and describe an attribute of God that may be new for many of you. The happiness of God the happiness of God. And here is why it's so important. Did you know that God is the most happy being in all the universe? And I pray and I trust that as we come back together next week that it will have a profound influence on you that not only is God the most happy being in the whole universe, he wants you to be happy as well. Please don't jump to any weird conclusions. This is not the health and wealth gospel. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not weird and wacky theology. It is the truth of biblical theology. We'll unpack that further next week. Suffice it to say, Boyce says, God has the right and the power and the wisdom to do whatever makes him happy. None of his purposes can be frustrated. Frustrated. Now, in the description of the sovereignty of God, I want to provide a a very, very simple and workable outline today. I want you to remember three very important things. The first is this, that the sovereign king reigns. What does it mean to say that that God is sovereign? Number one, we say that the sovereign king reigns. Go back to Daniel 4, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar. And you, you have the context now. Here's a guy... Who went nutso. Here's the guy who went crazy. And now Nebuchadnezzar confesses something altogether different. He says. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high. And praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice. For his dominion. Is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That is to say. The sovereign king Reigns. Now would you turn with me, hold your finger in Daniel 4, and turn back to Psalm chapter 11. I want to have you look with me at, at two of literally dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that point to this majestic and sovereign reign. First Psalm chapter 11, verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4. Here the psalmist makes a clear statement about God's authority and sovereignty. He says, the Lord Is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Move forward with me to Psalm chapter 47. Psalm 47, and look for a moment at verses 8 and 9. Psalm 47, verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now, admittedly, we've only looked at two passages, but I I hope you see the, the thread of truth or the emphasis in these passages. And that is God is reigning on his throne. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. We saw this a few weeks ago. We learned about the holiness of God as Isaiah caught that that vision of God. That this is a God who is holy, holy, holy. And the, the train of his robe filled the temple. He is the exalted one. He is the high God who is lifted up. Yet despite the clear teaching of scripture that God is on the throne. That he rules all peoples that he rules all nations, the dominant theme in church history for at least the last 100, maybe 200 years has been this. I'll put it the way you've heard it. What about free will? What about free will? And I want to respond with something like this. What about the sovereignty of God? Yes, people are free. Yes, we make free decisions, but the scripture is abundantly clear that God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. The sovereign king reigns. We need to recognize as we move closer and deeper into the subject that God is sovereign and I am not. I am not and very easy to say that isn't it to say God is sovereign and I am not but then we move into the marketplace of ideas and we begin to live our lives and somehow something subtle happens. It's something that's really diabolical where we start to to behave from time to time like King Nebuchadnezzar. And we start to think that we have it all together, that that we are the the masters of our own destiny. When all along, it is God who is sovereign over all things. What does it mean when we say that the sovereign king reigns? Notice three things. You see it on the screen. First, we see that God shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. uh, Psalm chapter 91 says it this way. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. We not only see that the sovereignty of God implies a, a forever reign, but we see, secondly, that God reigns and he shall judge the peoples righteously. Aren't you excited about that? That, that God, who is sovereign over all things, will be righteous in the execution of his judgment? Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. There's a third thing I want you to see as we examine this first principle concerning the sovereignty of God, that is that He reigns, I want you to see, much to the chagrin of many people in our culture, that God determines everything that comes to pass. God determines everything that comes to pass. Proverbs sixteen thirty three says the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision Is from the Lord. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, we read a a, a short, pithy statement that is oozing with biblical wisdom. It says this God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That is to say, God is not only in control of the cosmos, he's not only in control of the nations, he's also in control of the rulers of those nations, which means he's in control of the people of those nations, which is to suggest he is in control of every person in this sanctuary. God is sovereign over all things. I want you to see also that the book of Matthew teaches that Nothing is beyond the extent of God's sovereign control. I want you to look at this with me quickly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, we, we see the principle uh, vividly illustrated once again. Matthew ten twenty-nine. <clears throat> Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, the scriptures are clear that God determines all things that comes to pass. He knows the hairs on your head. So let's not make this personal this morning. He knows all about you. He knows all about me. That is to say, nothing is beyond the extent of God's sovereign control. I want you to look at the second main principle here. We not only see that the sovereign God reigns. I want you to see, secondly, that the sovereign king does as he pleases. He does as he pleases. Young people might put it this way. He does whatever he wants. God does whatever he wants he wants would you go back with me to daniel chapter 4 daniel chapter 4 the principle once again surfaces and we see that god very clearly is a god who does whatever he pleases all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Psalm one fifteen three says it this way Our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. I made a confession this morning in Veritas that there was a, a specific scripture that I first learned from the book of Job. Job chapter thirteen, verse fifteen, and that I learned that scripture in Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God even when life hurts. Does that book sound familiar to any of the women? This is a book that I read almost 25 years ago. And there's another verse. I want to share with you how significant and meaningful this book is. But I remember the day I read Psalm 115.3 in Jerry Bridges book. It goes like this. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It marked me. It marked me. It, it changed my thinking. It challenged my thinking. And I trust the same Will happen to you. The sovereign king does as he pleases. Notice in scripture that time and time again, over and over and over, we see that God is on a mission, he is working to advance his glory. His passion, that his his glory would spread over all the earth. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Exodus, some of you are, are taking Doug's challenge and my challenge earlier to read through the scriptures. So many of you, I trust, are reading the book of Exodus during the month of January and February. In the book of Exodus, we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? So that he will not let the Israelites go. In Exodus 7, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and multiplies his signs and wonders in Egypt. In Exodus twelve thirty six, once again, now he works in the hearts of the Egyptians. You can put it this way. He's working in the hearts of the bad guys, and he's working in the hearts of the good guys. Would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 14? Exodus chapter 14. And something absolutely incredible happens here as we begin to gaze into Really the, the, the back of God's mind and see what his motivations are. Where once again, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. In my Bible, I've written this. that This is the link. This is the link. And notice what it says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. That is Israel. Why does he do that? For ever since Exodus 4, we've been learning over and over and over again that God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And if you're like me, you're scratching your head going, why would he do such a thing? And now we get the answer. He will harden his heart and pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, And here's the link. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In verses 17 and 18, we read once again I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, the sovereign king does whatever he wants. He is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God works over and over and over again to advance his glory. But I want you to see something else. That is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Some might be tempted to say, well, that was the Old Testament. We'll look in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You say where where do the framers of the creeds and the catechisms get the language of God ordains or God predestines everything including people according to his sovereign pleasure? They get it from this verse. That he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, notice what God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. No ifs, ands or buts. And then finally, C, as we learn that God does whatever he wants, that his purposes are absolutely unchangeable. You know, I'm convinced that many people in the evangelical world believe that prayer can change the mind of God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because the scripture teaches that his plans and purposes are unchangeable. 1 Samuel 15, 29 and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In the New Testament, Paul says this in Ephesians 3. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in christ jesus our lord you see in eternity past god the father ordained everything that comes to pass everything god stands over every good event god stands over every evil event as we learned today in veritas the good things that happen god is praiseworthy for them the bad things that happen sinners And demons and the devil are blameworthy for the evil acts that they commit. John Piper says it like this. Thus, the declaration that God does all that he pleases is a declaration of his power. This is what we mean by sovereignty, Piper says. God's power always makes way for his perfections to be expressed according to his good pleasure. There's a final thing I want you to see this morning as we unpack the sovereignty of God. And that is that the purposes of the sovereign king can never be thwarted. Back to Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Notice, and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? I know on women's Bible study, one of the questions that either has serviced or will surface is concerning the book of Job. And Job had what I like to call an interview with God. You remember that at the end of the book of Job? And he started to question God and God answered him out of the whirlwind. I don't know about you, but whenever the text says God answered him out of the whirlwind, I don't want to be there. I want to be way down there. And I don't know about you, but whenever the text says, when God says to the creature, brace yourself like a man, I'm like, oh, goodbye, <laughs> right? Because Job had question after question after question, and God says, brace yourself like a man. Where were you when I created the starry host? You see, the purposes of the so- sovereign king can never be thwarted. And Job went through the interview process with God. You might call it the interrogation process because he was the one ultimately in the final analysis who was interrogated. And at the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 2, we find a, a man who has been humbled. We find a man who is repentant. We find a man who has the proper biblical worldview as he sees and worships God. And here's what he says I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, if God decrees it, it will happen. If God ordains it, it will happen. John Piper says, if none of his purposes can be frustrated, and I want you to think ahead to next week now, if you can prepare yourself for our next study if none of his purposes can be frustrated, then he must be the happiest of all beings. Now think about this. How many of you have ever had plans that you made? Guys, you had a, a big date with, a, with with this really pretty girl. Or men, you had a, a, a job interview with with the firm that you always dreamed about. Or ladies, you had your mind set on the perfect house. White picket fence. Little dog, never got in trouble, perfect little kids. You got it, right? And something happened and it didn't come to pass. Your plans fell through. That never happens with God. Therefore, he is the most happy being in all the universe. Piper goes on to say, just as our joy is based on the promise that God is strong enough and wise enough to make all things work together for our good. So God's joy is based on that same sovereign control. He makes all things work together for his glory. Let me sum it up. The sovereign king reigns. The sovereign king does whatever he pleases. And the, the purposes of this sovereign king can never, ever be thwarted. I want to close by having you take a look with me at what I like to coin the practical side of sovereignty. How does this hit us in the daily grind of life? What, what bearing does this reality have on my life? What difference does the sovereign control over all things have on my career or my marriage or how I parent or the, the kinds of things I engage in in my life? How does God's sovereignty factor into a tragedy that I am facing or may face in the future? Cancer, loss of a spouse, a wayward child, unemployment. There's a million things that we can we can plug in to this situation. Notice several things. First, God's sovereignty enables me to trust Him with every aspect of my life. The Belgic Confession once again says that this doctrine gives us unspeakable consolation. For we learn thereby that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the direction of our gracious Heavenly Father. I find it interesting that there are some very popular words that we use in our culture. One is luck. Good luck. Another is chance. Another is fortune. And and we use the words all the time. And it's just become a part of not only our culture, but it's become a part of evangelical subculture. But the Belgic Confession says this, He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this we trust because he knows that he holds in check the devil and all our enemies so that they cannot hurt us without his permission and will. I would challenge you with this. Instead of telling your loved one, good luck say something like this god speed now that's how the puritans did it that's how some of the the soldiers in the civil war operated god speed because what 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 power does chance have what power does luck have chance and luck simply are are non-existent in god's economy they don't exist there's a second practical reality you see it in your notes that god's sovereignty Proves that his reign shall endure and the promises of the new earth shall come to pass. Revelation 22 verse 5 and night will be no more. They will need no lamp nor lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Are you ready to spend all eternity on the new earth to live for the glory of God to love people? I want to encourage you. I'm kind of on a a Randy Alcorn kick these days. His book that he wrote many years ago, Heaven, I think is the best book ever written on heaven. Where Alcorn confronts the notion that heaven is pie in the sky. Heaven is where you go and get a halo and float around. And like every young person I've ever talked to, I don't want to go there. That sounds boring. I can guarantee you this, heaven will not be boring. We will be on the new earth with glorified bodies. We will eat, we will drink, we will play, we will worship, we will glorify God with our lives. Is anyone with me? Can you not wait for that experience? It's going to be incredible. Number three, God's sovereignty comforts me, knowing that nothing will enter my life without divine permission it was a few weeks ago right over in the fellowship hall someone was asking me how my week went and i was probably moaning and groaning and it was not pretty and man and the wife were just listening they were good friends and the wife looked at me and said well pastor dave Aren't you the one that's been teaching us that God ordains everything that comes to pass? (laughs) Painful. But beautiful. She was right. And I thanked her later for it. Is God ordains everything that comes to pass. As R.C. Sproul has often said, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. If there is one maverick molecule spinning out of control, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, God is not God. And if God is not God, we should stop worshiping him today. There are no maverick molecules in God's economy. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. What God permits, what God permits, God decrees to permit. You see behind every act of permission God made a sovereign decree that that event would come to pass. Number 4, when bitter providence strikes, I can rest assured that God allows me to endure a season of adversity that is ultimately for my good and for his glory. Any of you relate to this one? And I myself am ready for the good days. When bitter providence strike, I can rest assured that God allows me to enter a season of adversity that is ultimately for my good and for his glory. And then finally, the sovereignty of God should prompt each of us to worship. When considering the sovereignty of God, Charles Haddon Spurgeon proclaims, here, let us pause and worship. I at least must do so for my soul soul's eyes ache as though i had been gazing at the sun he goes on to say the proper response to the sovereignty of god is what he calls unquestioning acquiescence that's worth memorizing so what do you think about the sovereign pleasure of god over all things i've decided unquestioning acquiescence that's where i stand before the sovereignty of god you remember what edward said there is Been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. This morning, Christ Fellowship, my prayer is that there would be a wonderful alteration in your mind as you consider the sovereignty of God over all things. May this attribute of God strengthen you. May it comfort you. May it fortify you. May this attribute embolden you. May this attribute bring solace in your life. May the sovereignty of God drive you into a deeper relationship with the God of the universe. I am so excited for the women at Christ Fellowship who are reading, trusting God, even when life hurts. And I would make this challenge for the rest of the women who couldn't involve themselves in the study for whatever reason. My challenge to you would be to do this. Would get on the Internet this afternoon, purchase the book and read through the book. And all the men are going, yeah, I like this. But my challenge for the men is for you to do the same. Is to read this book and begin to take pleasure in the sovereign control of God over all things. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you as we'll sing about here in a moment. We affirm that you are sovereign over us. You are sovereign over the cosmos. You are sovereign over the nations. You are sovereign over Assad you are sovereign over President Obama. You are sovereign over ISIS. You are sovereign over mayors. You're sovereign over governors. You're sovereign over every man, woman, boy, and child. Indeed, you are sovereign over every every atom, every molecule. You're in charge of it all. And so this morning, we close with this song and want to acknowledge your sovereignty and not only acknowledge it, but to delight in it. To use this as an occasion uh, to worship you and to give you the glory that you deserve. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.